Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that was in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Greetings and thanks for joining us here on season two of Faith in Your Recovery. When you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here for you and with you. We get the struggle, the challenge, the stigma, the sense of loss. Whether we're your first choice or your last chance, we believe that together we'll make a difference. I'm Randy Davis, your host, pastor, as well as the founder and the executive director of A Better Life, Brianna's Hope. We're a participant-driven, faith-based, compassion-filled support and recovery movement for those battling the battle with substance use disorder. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Have a guest with us. Our guest is Kim Odom. Welcome, Kim. Well, thank you. Yeah, we look forward to what you have to share. We're going to have a little different approach, so you're not used to the original approach, so you won't know the difference. I won't. (laughs) Well, we just want you to be real, to be raw, to be honest, and share it in a way that you know it's going to impact folks, okay? Absolutely. Uh, We trust your words and your way here. Let's begin. Tell the folks where you're at in your recovery journey. I am three years sober. I have um, my um, certification in a peer recovery specialist. Um, I am currently uh, sponsoring uh, three people through Brianna's Hope out of Muncie. Um, I am um, working, thriving, have no desire to ever go back to that life again. I'm really... uh, if if I can if I can do this in recovery, anybody can. You know what? I love the word you use there, thriving. Yes. It's one thing to survive and another thing to thrive. And we want to help people get to that point of thriving. Exactly. To where they're at their healthiest, best, they're moving in the right direction and they're making a difference and impacting other lives. So uh what does what does recovery look like to you right now? You know, your emotions, your feelings, any fears or cautions that you deal with, possible triggers that you try to stay away from. Explain to folks what your sober recovery is. Um, one of the reasons that it was so important for me to do this is um, I... Uh, lost my best friend recently after getting out of prison. Um, she did not win her battle with addiction. And um, she meant the world to me. And she was trying really hard, but she had trouble with weight loss. And it was like, uh, the fastest way to, to lose weight is meth. And it happened to be mixed with fentanyl. And she didn't make it. <clears throat> so the story goes... That has been my biggest trigger since, but I, since being in recovery, that has been the most difficult thing for me to endure, is losing that person that I talk to every day and and not use again. I've had that temptation, but uh, in the same respect, 
I don't want to ever dishonor her memory and go back by doing that either. So I have managed to keep myself clean, but that has probably been the most triggering aspect was losing her since I've been in my recovery. Well, that would do it for certain. And the, the statistics prove the fact that those who are getting out of jail, prison, long-term recovery, the death rate is very, very high yep. because that resistance gone down half as much or take your life twice as fast. Exactly. And it sounds like maybe that's where she was. Right. Yes. I mean, she was working on her credit score. She had got her driver's license. I'm never going to do anything again. But she did keep, she kept harping on the fact that, you know, I don't like this weight that I've gained. I don't know of any easy way to lose it because it's just not coming off. And she just did this one time and that was all it took. Yeah. I think it's important for folks to hear that. Those who maybe don't understand all the dynamics don't get the fact that it can be one and done. There's no such thing as experimenting with drugs. Right. With the fentanyl, the car fentanyl anymore that's, you know, put into so many different forms of drugs, it can happen in your last heartbeat. I, in my recovery, deal with the fact that... Uh, I had siblings that would still choose to use, and my my brother got a hold of some of something laced with fentanyl about a month ago, and he OD'd and ended up in the hospital. But we got him in right away to um, a place up here at Anderson, and he did the program, and he's sober and doing really well. So I'm Great very thank I'm very thankful for that. I mean, like the next day we were able to get him into treatment and get him some help. And Good. so Good. Uh, it is. And I mean, and it, whether fentanyl is just in everything anymore. I mean, you just can't trust it. It's they're pressing given. they're pressing pills. I mean, you can buy the candy presses that look like Xanax, whatever they're doing. It's cheaper. So they mix it with everything to where you don't know what you're getting. And it's so deadly beyond a shadow of a doubt. So how were you, how are you able to stay above those as triggers? What have you done to maintain your sobriety, your clean um, time? I, I rely a lot on my higher power. I pray to God. Um, I uh, study the Bible. I do things to try to um, help when I can, but also I've had to learn you have to, you have to learn a certain level of nothing is worth costing my own recovery. So if I'm coaching you or you're related to me or whatever, if you're going to choose to use, I'm going to have to keep you at an arm's length because I'm not going to risk my recovery because of your decision. You're not any good to yourself if you do or right. anyone else, right? Yep. And I try to take time for myself, build myself, keep myself built up. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm big on my appearance when I go places now. I try to always get up, dress up, show up. That's a big slogan for me. Um, I try to, if, if my cup is empty, then I can't help someone else. Exactly. So I try to keep my cup as full as I can so that I can help other people. Yes, yes. Thanks for sharing that because people need to know that even after we start that journey to recovery and regardless of how far along we are, there's going to be those moments that try to suck us back into that darkness. And I remember I ended up sharing it at a meeting, but I remember I was upset because 
the loss of my best friend tempted me. And that's when I was told, look, you don't need to be upset about that. That's always going to, you're always going to have temptations. You need to be happy and thrilled with the fact that you didn't use. Don't be mad at yourself. Be proud of yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, even in the scriptures, it doesn't say it's wrong to be tempted because we all are. And they right. tried to tempt Christ if we want to start going that deep into it. But it's the idea, do we fall prey to that temptation or do we pray our way through, meditate our way through? Do we get through it or does it trip us up? Right. Yes. Yes. So good. Good. Let's back up a little bit more than that. Okay. At the height of your addiction, tell us what it was like. Then we're going to move back farther, how it got started, and we'll talk about some of that. But for now, at the height of your addiction, how long ago was that, would you say? Uh, The height of my addiction was early in the year in 2019. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that looked like. Um, Of course— in the uh, the my drug of choice was methamphetamine, and um, in the course of dating my dealer, whatever, I then decided that dealing it myself would be the easiest way to pay for it. So I became a dealer, and that's what I spent the early part of 2019 before I got caught in dealing methamphetamine. So what was got caught? Um, I had, uh, we were, we were actually out of a, a hotel room and, um, I had walked over to a, a Walmart in the middle of the night and I had gotten a call. I had been, I had been shoplifting for a while. So they kind of, they had never called me in, but they kind of knew who I was. So they called me in as a possible shoplift, although that night I did not. But anyway, they found um, a a small baggie in my purse. They took me in for possession of methamphetamine, and um, the rest kind of snowballed. I, uh, the, my uh, co-defendant was in the hotel room, and then the police showed up when they didn't check out, and things were found, and... That's how everything went down with uh, my, when I went, I was going to jail on a possession of methamphetamine charge, and I had about $400 cash on me, and they were like, we want to charge you with dealing, but we don't have enough, but two, like two to three days later, I hadn't been in front of a judge, and I knew something was wrong, and that's when one of them came and got me and said, you know, you've been, you've been charged with a level two dealing in methamphetamine, a level uh, five dealing in a controlled substance, and um, then uh, possess- uh, level six for pe- uh, paraphernalia. So they were using that time to build their case. Exactly. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Going back to something you said previously, the idea of you finally realized the best way to make money was to deal yourself, cut out that middleman. Exactly. That middle <laughs> person, I should say. Okay. And we've heard that over and over. That is the pattern. Mm-hmm. That's the way it That's works. the way most people do when they're when you're when your habit gets significant enough that it's costing you so much money in order for it to not cost you so much, you deal it yourself and then it, it it's not as it cuts down the cost. Yeah, right? exactly. And puts few And dollars. you know, I was going from trap house to trap house, hotel room to hotel room, living without utilities, peeing in buckets, I mean, you name it. 
That was the height of my addiction. Stealing food to eat. Was that in the East Central Indiana area? Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I want folks just to know geographically. Okay. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Any state and any part of that state for certain. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what kind of time were you looking at with those charges? I was looking at 30.04 years with those charges. And the state came at me three times with the same plea agreement, which was nine years. And um, I originally wasn't the first two times I told them no. And the last time she came to me, she's like, look, these are only going to get worse. You have two weeks to make up your mind. Make up your mind on this or I'm coming at you with something worse. And she just kept writing down that 30.04 and, and you know, new, well, the, they don't like drug deal or they don't like meth here. You better take this. And so um, the more I got to thinking and uh, I decided it, I also had uh, the option to uh, modify my sentence if I completed the RWI program. Tell folks what RWI is. Uh, it's a recovery while incarcerated. Okay. So I um, took the plea agreement um, on a Friday. On a Monday, I was on a bus to Rockville, and I was I was at Rockville Penitentiary for almost two and a half years. Uh, I got credit for three years because of the RWI program being six months long. Um, I did. I took the RWI program, and it really helped. I mean it. I'm sure it's it's a matter of what you want to give, but my my counselor sat down with me and helped me go through some traumatic events that I hadn't faced and dealt with, and everything up until then had always just been swept under the rug. This was this actually forced me to deal with things, and so that's what makes me think I have a better perspective on my recovery and will be able to hold on is the fact that I have dealt with things. Um, the I did uh, stay on until uh, they still wanted me to do a little more time because my sentence was a little longer, so he didn't look at my modification right away. Um, But uh, I stayed on at RWI as a mentor and mentored several ladies, um, to which they have several of them have messaged and said, you know, I wouldn't be in my recovery if it wasn't for you. And so, um, you know, that's uh, it really did help. Um, the RWI program. I I wouldn't be here where I am today if I wasn't so if it wasn't for that. What does that program look like? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, what you do is you have, uh, you go through a day of like um, either forums or meetings. Like they're they're very strict. You have to be up Monday through Friday, eight to five, dressed. You can't be asleep. You can't be laying down. You have to go to your forums and meetings and they kind of treat it like a job so that you get used you get acclimated to being in the society again responsibility accountability because to me that's what i had always said the program part is like they are programming you to be out there and um so uh we also had responsibilities like jobs um like i i was the head of jobs i was mentor i was the head facilitator, I was facilitator. There, Everybody has to have a job. So whether it's cleaning a bathroom to leading a meeting, you have to, everybody has to do something. You have to participate. Um, and then you're given uh, five treatment plans over the course of your probably six to nine month stay, just depending. 
and um, you have to complete those treatment plans with your counselor. And everybody's treatment plan is different. My my treatment plans mainly evolved around trauma because I had survived some traumatic events. Um, but everybody's is different. So uh, you have to complete those, and then your uh, counselor would put you on to the next phase. So you'd go from phase one to phase two until okay. you graduate okay. after phase five. So you kind of moved along at your own pace and abilities Correct. and openness yes. and effort and investment. Right. So, And I've heard a lot of people, I've heard a lot of comments say that RWI really didn't help them. And to me, that's just where it gets to, you know, it has to be what you're, it, at any point, it has to be what you're willing to put into it. Over the years, Better Life Brianna's and Hope's been able to send uh, awfully close to 2,000 individuals to treatment. Two people will go to the same place almost the same day. One of them will come out ready to attack the world, and the right. other one can't do anything but cuss everything they've been through. Exactly. And a lot of it's got to do with your attitude. Right. The program or the plan isn't going to work unless you work it. Right. And there's no one path, a particular Clinic, uh, rehab is not going to work for everybody. That's why there's multiple ones. And mm -hmm. sometimes you got to try one before you know what you really need. Exactly. And, of course, the, the treatment process is in fluctuation every day. There's always a change of some type of new ideas. So, uh, yeah, well, so I... I won't ask you to go into details, but you talked about the trauma. Right. Were these adverse childhood experiences, or were they more later on in life? Um, they started out when I was younger, okay. and they went all the way up until I became an adult. And it's just the fact that uh, the traumatic experiences over the course of time were—it's a big plight for me is— is people's self-worth, whether it be a woman or a man, is to feel like you're worth something. Because I, with all the things that I had, you know, abandonment issues in my early childhood, a molestation in my teenage years, uh, incest in my later teenage years, and then domestic violence when I was 18, it's like all of that led up because I kept thinking after each time, I thought, well, he abandoned me, so I must not be worth it. He molested me, I must not be worth it. He raped me, I must not be worth it. He's going to beat me every day, but I must not be worth it. So, you know, as long as that's that's all a big plight for me is for people to understand that they are worth something. Because at any juncture in those times, had I actually thought I was worth something, none of those things would have been acceptable to me. Yes, yes. That makes total sense. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that because there's folks out there and you know it as well as I do that have gone through very similar circumstances. Right. We lose that sense of value, self-worth, right. as you labeled it. And we need to somewhere along the line have somebody, pardon me, smack us on both cheeks and get our attention and let us know we do matter. Yeah. that's one. It's one of my favorite activities every couple of months. You can ask Linda DeHaven at Muncie. I make us sit down and write down the five things that we feel our self-worth about ourselves. And most people look at me like I'm crazy, like they can't come up with one or two. But uh, one of my girls in RWI that I had do that, 
She couldn't come up with one or two the first day. We really had to try, really had to try. Really, she When she graduated the program, she brought me a list of 25 things she <laughs> thought worth of herself. So yes, it yes. is very important to, to know your worth, to know your value, that you are worth something, and everybody's worth something. You got it. Uh, one of the methods I'd use in counseling as a pastor would be to give a three-by-five to someone, mm-hmm. and I would sell I would say to them to write a classified ad that we could run in the newspaper if they wanted to sell themselves. Now, I don't mean for poor reasons, sell yourself, but as a person, what do you have to say about yourself? Some could have written a book and others could hardly get two lines, much like you're saying. And most of that had to do with their childhood years, how they were treated. And we all need to know we're of greater value than the way others treat us. Exactly. Whether we're in addiction or wherever we're at in life, that needs to be a part of it. So you've given us some of the background, some of those experiences, the Mm -hmm. trauma. How, How did you get started in your addiction? I got started in my addiction really early on when I was, um, like I said, the the trauma started early. So yes. I've, I uh, was 45 when I went to prison, but I started dabbling with things when I was 18. I uh, nerve pills and um, pot and pain pills, and it was just on occasion or here or there. Uh, I used alcohol a lot, uh, and... Um, then I went through a few year bout with cocaine, and um, I just one day I just said, "Hey, you know this isn't worth it anymore," and I quit it cold turkey. So I had um, I still do some things on occasion, like a, a nerve pill if somebody had one, a pain pill if somebody had one, whatever, uh, suboxone some. Um, but on uh, March eleventh, two thousand seventeen, which is my birthday. Um, I had not one, but two friends show up with methamphetamine as my birthday present. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I can do, I could do cocaine and leave it. I could do nerve pills and leave it. I can do this and leave it. I'm going to do this for my birthday and then I'm going to be done. No, didn't happen. I was hooked. You had a uh, couple three-year birthday parties. I did. Sure did. Wow. That landed me right in prison. Yes. Yes. Led in that direction for certain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you have folks alongside at that time who were trying to encourage you to get away from it? Or did you have a greater pull from those who wanted you to stay in it? I had a greater pull from those who wanted me to stay in it. And, like, I, my poor parents during my the last year when I was dealing the most I I had nothing to do with them just simply because I didn't want them brought into my misery I I mean birthdays holidays Christmas I I wouldn't talk to my mom on the phone nothing she knew nothing about she'd have to find out stuff about me from other people but I didn't want them I mean what how do you I'm existing every day, but I don't have a job. So how do you, when you're on your phone with your mom and your mom, are you eating? Yeah, well, how? Well, I, I'm i a drug dealer, mom. You, what does that conversation look like? So I just, I cut off basically anybody that was any good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
out of sight, out of mind, exactly. the old adage, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it kept you in that denial as well because yes. you didn't have to voice it to anyone. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, you said the the addiction to the meth lasted, what, a couple of years? Yes. Basically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Do you have temptations today to return to any of those? No. You've moved beyond that. I've moved beyond that, yeah. You know, I learned a long time ago as I started working with addiction, substance use disorder, there's a world of difference in being clean and being clear. Right. Clean is just a matter of I'm no longer using. It doesn't mean you've changed your thinking. Correct. Your actions, your behaviors. Getting clear involves all of that. And I can say, like I said, the one tendency that I did have to to almost trigger is the fact that um, I used my drugs to self-medicate. So in like losing my best friend, I would have thought of entertaining the idea of doing dope to escape my reality, not because I wanted the dope, but to escape my reality but then I also know now through my recovery that it's only going to be that much worse when I do yeah. face it. So I didn't do that. Well, that was a learned behavior. It had worked for right. you in one way, but certainly worked at destroying you in another way. And that is that is the place where you have to get to. You have to learn to live a life that you don't want to escape. Yeah. yeah. So, Kim, what is there that I haven't asked you about your story that you'd like to add? Anything at any level? Um, I just, it's just real important to me that people do, you know, learn your worth. Don't, um, you know, reach out to whoever you need to in your group setting, your sponsor, whatever, and um, get, understand that abuse and self-medicating and things like that is uh, not okay. Make it, make your, make yourself worth more than that because you are. And it's not your fault. Right. Uh, <laughs> we have a, uh, a granddaughter who went through a tough situation, very similar to what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. And she has managed to realize that. She's moved well above it when it could have held her back forever. So right. we're, we're happy about that. Yeah, and that was a lot of where I had to get to, too, was forgiveness and stuff in my trauma and those who had done things to me because that was holding me back. Um, so in learning to forgive some of those people, that was – and I, I – it doesn't define me. It happened to me. Yes, that's that's very well put. I hope, say that again so folks get that. Your trauma. Your trauma does not define you. It's what happened to you. And there's a world of difference, mm-hmm. isn't there? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's valuable information. Our podcast, we call it Faith in Your Recovery. What do those four words mean to you? Faith in your recovery. There's no wrong answer. I'm just asking your personal opinion and experience. Uh, it means everything because you have to have faith every day. Uh, you have to have faith in yourself. You have to have faith in your higher power. You have to have faith in your, you know, uh, your your choices when it comes to who you're going to associate with, who you're not going to. Faith, faith is just your your basis for getting back out there. So 
with the word faith in mind, are you, and don't let me talk into this, okay? okay? But with the description you just gave, faith is a growing process. Yes, Yes, very much so. That you see it works, and the more you try it, the better it works. Correct. And that encourages you to even work it harder, and all of a sudden, you're above that problem. Right. Yeah, there'll be others waiting on you, that's for sure. That's yeah. called life, I exactly. think, all right? Yeah. Uh, I found out early on as I, again, as I started with A Better Life, Brianna's Hope, flat tires happen to everybody. Not because you're, pardon the expression, but many of them will use an ex-addict. Not because you've been clean a month and it's a curse on you. Flat tires happen. Exactly. Stuff happens. Yeah, of course. How are we going to deal? How are we going to cope? We don't have to like it. We've got to deal with it. Right. Deal with it in a healthy way. And you found that. I have. Yes. Yeah. Give other than, and I'm not diminishing your desire and the importance of it to you to let people know their worth and value. But give the folks out there some hope and help with another statement on their recovery. Um, if I can do it, you can do it. I mean, if um, it it really is, uh, it, is it going to be easy? Probably not. I mean, there are several things that you may have to work through. Everybody's situations are different. Um, and I I still have yet... I've heard it a couple of times, but I don't believe it. I still have yet to run across that person who just does drugs to be doing drugs. Okay. There's always there's always a reason. Underlying factors. There's underlying factors. So I don't really believe. People. Earlier, I think you used the term you were sweeping it under the rug. Exactly. We all have things in our life we've swept under the rug. Some of us stopped before it tripped us is yeah. the difference. And until you're ready to address those things, you're probably real. Your recovery is probably not going to be real, real successful. Yes, yes. It ha- the timing's incredible. We don't want to wait too long because we don't know how many tomorrows we have. Exactly. We've always got another party. We don't know we've got another recovery in. Us. And you know, I used to be. I when I was thriving in my addiction, I would have been one of those ones. If you would have come up to me and said, "Oh." Um, you know, fentanyl's out there, it's bad. I'd have been like, yeah, right, whatever, and went on. But no, seriously, like, it's really bad. <laughs> there, That cannot be stressed enough that yes. it's dangerous. Uh, and it is in everything. So, yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to mess this up, but I can come pretty close. Morphine is the strongest drug you can buy over the counter. Okay? And I know Morphine, you've got to have a prescription for it, but it's four times stronger than any drug you can get over the counter. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than morphine, and carfentanil is 100 times stronger than fentanyl. Right. It's used to bring elephants down. All of us together mm-hmm. are the strength and size of an elephant. Right. In a heartbeat, it's got us. You mm-hmm. can't take the risk. Right. Uh, you may not believe, I don't mean this personally to you generically, right. you may not believe out there that in zero tolerance, but drugs believe in it because in a heartbeat, they can have you, as we've said earlier. Yeah. 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 
So, uh, Kim, thank you. Thank you for what you've shared with us. Thank you for the insight you've given the folks here. And we want to thank you folks for joining us today. Continue to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell a friend about us. Leave a comment or send us an email to podcast at ablbh.org. And above all, remember, don't give up on yourself or others and don't give in to the urge. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be just around the next corner or in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Believe and keep fighting the battle. God bless. God bless.